Hope you've not closed your Bible or turned away from 1 Peter. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, so if you haven't, please um, turn there. And we will look today at the first five verses. We are beginning a study in Peter's first epistle. Um, Peter's writing is is always a good challenge. Um, it's interesting, and there's a unique sense of weight, a unique sense of joy, and unique challenges when we read Peter's writing. As we think about Peter, we think about one who was one of Jesus' closest companions during his public ministry. Peter was right there, and yet he fell immensely when Jesus was going through his trials and going to be crucified Peter denied even knowing Jesus. This who was of his closest friends, Peter denied knowing Christ. And so in that sense, when we read Peter's writings, when we study this man's writings and his life, we should do so with sober minds and sober hearts. Because if not for the grace of God, we would be just like Peter and deny Christ. While sobering, there is also this unique joy that the Christian should have as we study the Apostle Peter. Because though he did fall immensely, great was his fall, great also was his restoration from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ restored him and even recommissioned him in the end of John's gospel to go out and to be a minister of the gospel. Peter was one of the foundational members of of the New Testament church, one of the leading men, one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. So with that, there should be this unique joy as we study Peter because we can get a firsthand reminder of God's grace and his mercy and his kindness toward us. Peter also presents challenges to us because, yes, he was a fleshly and a fallen man, but when he had repented, when he had been restored by Christ, he was a man sold out for the sake of the gospel. He presents challenges and examples to us in the way that he writes and in the way that he lived. History tells us that Peter was martyred for his faith, that he actually was crucified for his faith, likely right after watching his wife be crucified, And when they hung Peter on a cross, he has to be hung upside down because he said, I don't deserve to suffer the same death that Christ suffered. So as we consider this man, there should be this unique challenge as he tells us things like he does in chapter 1 to be holy just as he who called you is holy. As he reminds us that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Those were not just words on a page for Peter. He lived those words. So again, there is a weightiness, a joy, and a challenge as we embark on this journey through um, 1 Peter. And I hope and pray that it will be beneficial to you. Peter writes to those who are suffering. There are those among us who are suffering. And if you're not suffering presently, chances are in the future you will suffer whether it's trials and tribulations of this life or whether it's persecution at the hand of the world or the government. 
And so Peter's epistle is timely because he tells saints how to live as sojourners, as exiles, as pilgrims, walking the course of this life on the way to their eternal home. And so with that, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 will be our text today. The title is Glorifying God as Sojourners. Really, that's the title for his introduction, and that's kind of the overarching title for this entire letter, Glorifying God as Sojourners. So let's look to our text, want to read these five verses, and then ask the Lord to bless our time, to focus our hearts and minds, and to bless the teaching and preaching of his word. So this, dear friends, is the word of the living and true God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of God. Now let's go before his throne of grace in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning and as we should feel every week, there's this great and overwhelming sense of our inadequacy and there's a sense of not being fully and rightfully prepared. Lord, there are so many distractions in the world, in our lives that would take away from us coming to worship with prepared hearts and minds. Lord, I thank you that we've had the chance earlier this morning to spend an extended period of time in prayer together, asking you to prepare our hearts. I thank you that you are not limited by our strength or our sin or, or our distractedness. But Lord, you can work in mighty ways in and among us. And Lord, we ask that you would do that. We come before your throne of grace with boldness and confidence because we have an advocate at that throne of grace, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer. And we ask through his name and by your grace that the power of the Spirit would work mightily among us today. Lord, I pray that the words spoken would be clear and encouraging and edifying. I pray that you would give each one of us a heart and a mind that is ready and eager to receive and apply the truth. Give us, Lord, ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to put away every distraction 
of life and the world around us. Lord, could, could we not just give you this, this small period of time in our week to fully devote all of our attention and affection upon our great Savior and your great revealed truth? Lord, please help us. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Would you break up the hard and stony ground? Would you prepare our hearts to receive the food of your holy word? Would you help us to be nourished upon and nourished by the truth? Lord, would you sanctify us by the truth? Your word is truth. Lord, would you show us Christ? Would you reveal your glory, God, through the preaching of your word? Help us to see Christ. Drive us deeper in our dependence upon Christ. Cause us to leave the things of the world and to follow our Savior, to take up our cross and follow him each and every day. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Peter begins his letter here reminding these saints who are scattered throughout this region in the Roman Empire. This is kind of modern-day Turkey, if you're familiar with the Middle East. He begins by reminding them of their election in the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them that they have this unfading, this sure inheritance that is kept in heaven for them by God, by the very one who called them unto salvation and the very one who keeps them saved. Right from the start, he tells them that because of this great work of God, they ought to give glory and honor and praise to the one to whom all glory and honor and praise is due. He encourages them to remember the work of Christ and to be strengthened and sustained by looking to the future hope that they have. And dear friends, it is a glorious future. It is a glorious hope. So to kind of set us on, on a course for today to think through a, a primary exhortation that we'll look at today, we, we have this kind of hopefully simple sentence. Glorify God as sojourners. We are pilgrims and aliens on a journey toward heaven, and we must glorify God as sojourners by looking toward the blessed hope of our unfading inheritance, which is kept in heaven for you and me by God through our faith, which he sustains. So again, we can simplify that a lot. Glorify God as sojourners. Glorify him by looking to your great hope. And as 1 John says, he who hopes in the return of Christ purifies himself just as Christ is pure. So let's jump right in. Peter, he kind of gives us a, a good introduction without us having even to, to come up with an introduction to the letter. He introduces himself, he introduces his audience, and he introduces the purpose of of his letter. So let's dive right in. The first thing we want to see is the author identified. The author identified at the beginning of verse 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's three identifications in that. He tells you his name, Peter. He tells you his position, his title. He is an apostle. And dear friends, he tells you his master. He tells you his Lord, the one whom he serves, Jesus Christ. So what's in a name, you might ask? What is in a name, the name Peter? What can we glean from that one word that he begins this epistle with? The name of Peter is greatly, greatly important in the story of Scripture and in the history of the church. Originally, this man's name was Simon. Jesus called him out to be a disciple, to be one of those 12 who followed him and Simon did. He went and he followed Jesus and we're kind of midway through maybe Jesus's ministry. In Matthew 16, we pick up this astounding and amazing story. Uh, They're in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has been ministering and he's there now with his disciples. And he says, who do these people say that I am? And they respond, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or maybe another one of the prophets. And so then Jesus pointedly looks at these of his kind of closer circle of disciples says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, always quick to speak, always ready to speak up for those brethren, immediately jumps up. And and in this instance, oftentimes maybe he didn't give the best of answers, but in this instance we get the bedrock truth of the church. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And at that point, then Jesus changes Simon's name. He says, and you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You are Peter. Petros is the Greek word. It means a stone or a pebble or a small rock. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this Petra, on this large rock, on this foundational truth that you just confessed, I will build my church. Peter, I will build my church not on you, but on the truth that I am the Christ and the Son of the living God. Throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry, while he was on earth, when you would see him interacting with this man, you would often get a sense of of the, the rightness or the wrongness of Peter's actions by which name Jesus referred to him as. When Peter was acting in the flesh, he would call him Simon. Or Simon Peter, kind of hearkening him back to, to his time before Christ. But when Peter would act in the spirit, Jesus would call him Peter. The, the rock, the, the one who brought forth this great confession that Jesus is the Christ. So again, what's in a name? Well, in the name of Peter, we should all immediately be reminded of his great confession. We should be reminded of his confession of Jesus as the Christ, which is the foundational building block of the church, of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we confess him as our Lord, our Savior, and our head. 
So we're not only reminded of Peter's confession, but when we hear his name, we should be reminded of our confession, that Jesus is our Christ, he is our Messiah, he is our Lord and Savior. We should also be reminded when we hear Peter's name about the battle that remains between the flesh and the spirit. Because from that point, there were still times that Jesus called him Simon because he still battled the flesh. So, so when we think about what's in a name, there's a whole lot wrapped up in the name of Peter. But we also see here his position or his title. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is kind of a, a Bible word that maybe many of you are familiar with. It's the Greek term apostolos. It means one who is directly sent from another, to be sent from, is its most basic meaning. And so just like in Peter's name, um, this, this title that he, that he mentions of himself that was given to him by Christ, we could kind of gloss over that and miss the importance in this introduction of considering his position as an apostle. Peter identifies himself as one who is sent directly by the Lord. He is commissioned by the Lord, and he is writing on behalf of the Lord. The words he writes are not his own. He is writing the direct, exact words that are superintended to his hand, to his mind, by the Holy Spirit of God. Matthew Henry noted that this word also can signify the highest office in the Christian church. He said, yes, it does signify one who is sent by Christ, but also in Peter's day, it was the highest office in the church. Now, the office of apostle has passed away because there's no longer direct revelation of Jesus Christ in personal form like those disciples and the apostle Paul had. But at that time, Peter was standing up and saying, friends who are reading this letter, I'm writing to you as the highest official in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's both urgency and authority in this statement. And it's urgent because he's saying, I'm writing on behalf of the Lord. And it's authoritative because he's saying, I'm writing as the Lord's choice instrument, as an apostle, as a leader of the Lord's church. Now, there's even a sense where Jesus applied this term to himself. John 17, chapter, th uh, chapter 17, verse 3. We know that Jesus had the offices of prophet, priest, and king, but there's a way in which he also assigned himself the office of apostle. Follow along here, John 17, 3. He prayed to his father, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's the word apostolos. The Father sends the Son, the Son then sends the apostles. So, so in a way, Jesus is the foremost, the, the preeminent of that group. So Peter identifies his name, the name Peter given to him by Christ. He identified his title, his office, apostle, again, bestowed to him by Christ. And then he also tells you of his Lord and his master, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a man constrained by his master. This is a man who writes in total submission 
to the master that he serves. Not one word in this letter is Peter's own opinion. Every word of this is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And as Peter lived his life, he lived in light of that. That he was a servant of the Most High. He was not a servant of Peter. He was not a servant even in this overarching sense of the church. Peter was a servant of one master. His master was the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the author identified. The next thing we want to consider is the audience specified. The audience specified, continuing in verse 1 and into verse 2, he writes, To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So he describes who his audience is, and then he moves to discussing their spiritual state, that they are those who are in Christ. He specifies exactly who are the intended recipients of this letter. He firstly says that you are aliens. He says, to those who reside as aliens, those who reside as sojourners or pilgrims, those who are living in what is ultimately a foreign land. Yes, these people may have been Jewish Christians scattered out of Jerusalem in persecution, but much greater than that, the theme we'll see throughout this letter is that they are saints on a pilgrimage toward eternity. They're aliens because this whole world, it wouldn't matter what town or city or nation they were in. This entire world is a foreign land to God's people because this is not our home. This is not our ultimate good. This is not our ultimate glory. We are on a journey to be called to eternity to live with Christ. When you consider this, you can understand how this would be kind of an undergirding truth that Peter wants to lay as a foundation to his letter because this fact that we're on a journey to an eternal home can undergird and can strengthen and sustain our lives as we walk through trial and persecution and suffering. When you consider this to be a journey from your conception through this life and ultimately ending in eternity in glory, when you have that mindset, the trials of this life, though they can be difficult, they can, they can overwhelm us at times, those trials become much more clear. They become much more manageable because you can say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 that these things are light and momentary afflictions because they don't compare to the eternal weight of glory that is coming for, to those who are in Christ. So, dear friends, that does not minimize suffering or hardship. That does not minimize sickness. That does not minimize persecution. That does not minimize the, the hardship that sin can bring in our life. But what it does is it tells the saints of God that this is not your home. It gives you hope, friend, that you are on a journey that ends in eternal glory. 
the weight of glory that you know from your suffering in this life, from the nearness that suffering brings you when suffering crushes in on you and you are driven to Christ, that suffering produces, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory. God's word teaches us that he is in control of all things and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. James begins his letter in a similar way. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Peter is writing to those who are on a journey those who are aliens, those who are on a pilgrimage, those who are suffering and will continue to suffer for the faith and just generally in their lives. Suffering will come. And he tells them that the suffering then will will help you to sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts. The suffering is, is somewhat highlighted as he continues on. Those who reside as aliens scattered throughout this region. The term scattered is the Greek word diaspora. It talks about being dispersed, to be spread out. And there is a sense where some may interpret this to be kind of the great dispersing of the Christians out of Jerusalem as persecution came. We don't know that to be completely true, but we do know that these are people who are scattered across a region. The, the spread of the gospel, the spread of the church, the scattering of the church in the New Testament really had but, but two foundations. Either the people left Jerusalem because they were suffering, because they were persecuted and they were run out of town, or they went out as missionaries to spread the gospel of Christ. And then, of course, as people went out, churches began popping up, and then they would go out from there. But Peter writes to those who are spread, those who are scattered, those who are out in a world, in a land, in a nation that is not their home. But then his description shifts. You notice that he doesn't spend long on this temporal state. His description shifts to their spiritual state. Those who are chosen by God, those who are sanctified by the Spirit, those who are washed clean in the blood of Christ so that they might obey Christ. He begins then, this is, this is one of the most succinct and clear and full pictures of God's plan of salvation. Really, really, I don't know that it can get much more clear than this. This is almost, in a sense, exhaustive. Talks about the, the choice of God, God's election. Talks about the application of that election through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and how that application is done through the blood of Christ and the purpose of all that, that you obey. So let's dig into that. Let's dig into these spiritual realities of Peter's readers and see how they can kind of emphasize what Peter is writing here. He begins by saying that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, saints, we should be comforted with this. The, The doctrine of election 
should be a great comfort to one in Christ because you are reminded that God placed his love on you in eternity past. He chose you to be his child. And all those that the Lord chooses, ultimately he will bring through to the end of salvation. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Election is God's love on display. Jesus talked to his disciples about choosing. John chapter 15. He said, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. I chose you. Now, that might be specific to his calling out of the disciples, but we see this idea that the Father chooses, the Son chooses, the Spirit then goes and applies, bringing fruit, bringing regeneration, bringing new life to those that the Lord has chosen. So perhaps today... You identify with these saints to whom Peter writes. Look around the room. I know that there are those of you who are suffering. You're going through trial. I know that many of us will one day face a great, probably, persecution for the faith. And so maybe you can identify with these readers. And you are trying to stand firm and remain in Christ despite great suffering. To those of you who suffer, Peter says, Dear saints, remember that you are choice and precious to the Lord. Remember that he chose you because he loves you. And now, remembering that choice of the Lord, dear saints, stand firm. Remain in Christ. Not only, though, are they saved because of God's election, his electing grace, but Peter says that they are saints because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that phrase kind of has to be kept together. The the English has spread out um, just a couple Greek words into into a long phrase. The, The sanctifying work is used in a noun form. So here comes a grammar lesson from somebody that's not real good at grammar, especially not Greek grammar. A noun, obviously, is a person, place, or thing. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is a thing. It is a whole and encompassing work. So you say, what in the world does that mean? MacArthur can explain it better than me, so let me read this from him. He said, it means that this encompasses all that the Spirit produces in salvation. All that the Spirit produces. Faith, repentance, regeneration, and adoption. Thus, MacArthur continued... Election, the plan of God, becomes a reality in the life of the believer through salvation, the work of God which the Holy Spirit carries out. All that is yours in salvation is summed up and brought about by what Peter calls the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So this is the work of the Spirit by which you are positionally sanctified. You are counted as one who is holy and righteous, but of course we know that that counting is effective, and we'll get to that in a minute. But he says, you are choice of God. You are saved by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the sainthood continues in that you are saved by this work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood and be sprinkled with 
his blood. If you need hope today, dear friends in this room, the hope is that you are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. If you are suffering, your hope is not that, that the Lord will remove that suffering, that he will, you have the sense of hope that he will give you grace to sustain you, but your ultimate hope is that you are sprinkled, that you are washed thoroughly with the blood of Christ. Your sins are no more. They have been forgiven. They were that certificate of debt that was held against you was nailed to Christ on the cross. You are washed clean if you would come to the Savior for salvation. If you would come to Christ in repentance and and asking him to forgive your sin and turning from your sin, and if you would come to him in faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he has ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of God and to intercede for you, if you believe that, if you confess Christ as Lord, if you turn from your sin, then you have this assurance. You have this assurance that you are washed by the blood of Christ. As I said just a a moment ago, it doesn't just stop there that you are washed, because Peter says that we are saved to obey There's this great and effective purpose of God in salvation. He does not save you. He does not wash you. He does not put his spirit within you that you might remain in your sin. Rather, you are saved so that you can be transformed, so that he can prepare you and fit you and and ready you to be transferred from this life to eternal glory. You are saved to obey You're not saved in order to earn righteousness. You could never earn the righteousness required for your salvation. But you are saved so that you might pursue righteousness. So this is Peter's audience. And this is the hope of their salvation. They are scattered. They are dispersed throughout this region. They are sojourning and they are suffering But they are saints who are precious before the Lord. They are sanctified by the Spirit, and they are washed clean in the blood of Christ. So we've seen the author identified, the audience specified, and thirdly, in verse 3, consider the Lord glorified. The Lord glorified. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter describes the Lord as being glorified and then tells the saints why they can glorify the Lord. The term blessed is the Greek word that we draw our word eulogy from. Eulogy in its most basic sense means to speak well or to speak highly of someone. So in that sense, Peter is saying, and this falls so utterly short of the glory of God, but he's saying, the Lord is spoken highly of. The Lord is highly regarded. This specific term in the New Testament is only used in reference to God. 
This is a glory that he will not share with another. This is a glory that man cannot attain. Man can strive after honor and praise and even glory from other men, but this glory that belongs to only God cannot be attained by men. And Peter uses this in the form of an adjective. An adjective is a descriptive term. So he's not necessarily exhorting his readers to praise and glorify Christ, but he is describing God as glorified. He, he is like Paul in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, when Paul talks about the evil of men. Verse 25, he says, For they, ungodly men, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is simply who God is. He is blessed. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is high and lofty and exalted. Peter applies this kind of specifically to the Father, but we know that this applies to Jesus Christ the Son as well. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus is high and exalted. He is the Lord. He is worthy of all praise and glory. And so too is the Father blessed and glorious. Every knee may not want to bow. Every tongue may not want to confess. But on the authority of Scripture, we know that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, do you bow in reverence and in awe and in humility of your Savior? Or do you bow in humility before your just judge? So why is this description of God as being blessed or being glorious? Why is this description of God comforting to believers, to Peter's audience, why does this give them comfort in their suffering and in their sojourn? Well, continue reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is glorified then in this sense, at the very least, he is glorified in his work of salvation. As we walk through our sojourn, we have this hope, we have this implication that we need to glorify God because He has saved us. He has caused us to be born again. He has given us a living hope. He has raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies to intercede on our behalf. So as you sojourn, as you suffer, you say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has caused me, he has caused you to be born again to a living, enduring hope. Peter essentially says that above all, no matter what, God is to be glorified. But with the tender heart of a shepherd, 
Surely, following the example of Christ, the good shepherd, Peter shows this tender heart and reminds the saints that they glorify God, not just because he is God, though that is fully sufficient, but he says, saints, you glorify God because he has shown you eternal mercy and kindness. He has, according to his great mercy, given you hope through Christ. So while you suffer, while you labor, while you strive and toil and, and work through hardship, glorify God because of this living, enduring hope. Finally, looking at verses 4 and 5, we want to consider the promises fortified. So the author has been identified. The audience has been specified. The Lord is shown as glorified. And now we see these promises of God fortified, made sure, solidified. Verses 4 and 5 says that we're saved in Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, which is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You just notice that even just a cursory reading, you see the stacking of terms, the, the great assurance that we should take and have in Christ here. We have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's also reserved in heaven for you who are protected by God. So that's five things, that five terms stacked right on top of each other to show us the surety of our salvation. Our inheritance is so great. Our inheritance is to go to be with Christ, to rule and to reign with him while we worship and glorify him at his feet. But our inheritance is also so sure it cannot be corrupted. It cannot be tainted. It cannot be devalued. It cannot be taken away or minimized. The inheritance that the believer receives in Christ cannot be corrupted. It cannot be destroyed. It is pure. It is free from any contamination. Perfectly pure. And it is eternally unfading. It will not fade away. It will not fade away because it is God who keeps and holds and sustains that inheritance. And I think there's this incredibly beautiful and helpful and encouraging play on words here that we see. He says that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. So your inheritance is reserved, it is kept, and it's guarded in heaven by God while God keeps and protects you on earth. So you have this inheritance in eternity in heaven. You have a faith that is kept by God on earth. Both of those things are held perfectly together by the Lord. It is the Lord who keeps. It is the Lord who sustains. As we sang, I think it was last week, it is he who will hold you fast. You could never keep yourself through this life. But God keeps, sustains, and protects your faith. Not only does he keep and sustain and protect your faith, but he keeps and sustains the promised inheritance that he has for you when he calls you to glory. We only see this 
friends, in part today. One day we will see in full. One day the blinders will be taken off and we will realize this great and blessed hope and inheritance. We will partake of the fullness of our glorious redemption in eternity. But until then, we're sojourners. We are aliens and pilgrims on a journey toward heaven. We must strive to honor and obey and glorify the Lord with our lives. We must walk and labor and war for the sake of personal holiness and sanctification. We, we labor in difficult times, in difficult circumstances, and in difficult situations because we are working toward an eternal reward and an eternal home. We walk in war and labor knowing that we were chosen by the foreknowledge of God, we are sanctified by the work of the Spirit, and we are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Peter opens his letter then not with a promise of an easy life, for that would be completely untrue and would make this letter not in keeping with the whole of Scripture. What Peter opens his letter with is reminding his readers of the glorious promises of the life to come with Christ. He reminds his readers not only of those glorious promises, but that Christ himself will keep and guard them until that day when he calls them home. So this being Holy Scripture is obviously a perfect introduction to this letter. Peter sets the stage for what he is going to write. He is going to encourage these suffering saints but this letter is not just sunshine and roses about the future inheritance. He is going to tell them to put away all slander and deceit and malice and hypocrisy so that they can long for the pure milk of the word. He is going to tell them to suffer for the sake of Christ, to look to Christ as their supreme example. He's going to tell them to be ready to make a defense of the hope that is in them. He's going to tell them be holy just as God is holy but all of this he undergirds by reminding them of their great salvation in Christ as we consider this can there be any return of obedience that is too much as we consider the price that was paid and we'll come and consider it in even more depth in a few minutes so we consider the blood of Christ poured out on the cross his righteousness credited to our account is there anything that is too much for the Lord to ask of us? You remember what Paul said in Philippians 2 of Christ, that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I challenge you. I ask you, is there anything that you can do that outsteps, outpaces, or overshadows the price that was paid for your redemption? Can you offer the Lord anything less than devoted obedience and joyful submission? As we walk through the hardships of life, the hardships of sin, the suffering, the suffering for the faith, friends, may we remember that we are kept by God.
May we remember that and then flowing out of that with the Spirit at work in us, may we say with Peter here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be our Lord Jesus Christ as well, but blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again, who has given to us a living hope through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. May that truth fill our hearts this day and this week. May we glory in God in all things. Let's close in prayer.